The Bakari Sellers Podcast tackles the most pressing current events through conversations and interviews with high-profile guests. Building upon his experience in South Carolina government and politics and his experience as a lawyer, Sellers will talk to his guests about all topics from the world of politics. Check out the Bakari Sellers Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here along with producer Erica Cervantes. David, I want to start with a couple of thoughts about the way the media has been covering the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I want to start by drawing everyone's attention to a photograph that was published on the front page of today's New York Times and on top of the paper's website this morning. It was taken by Times photographer Lindsay Adario. I know you know the photograph I referred to. On Sunday, Adario was in Irpin, which is a city right across the river from Kiev. Adario saw a family that was trying to cross a bridge into Kiev to escape the fighting. And here I'm going to pick up the story she wrote with Andrew E. Kramer of the Times. On Sunday, as Ukrainian refugees were milling near the entrance to the structure, that is the bridge, calculating their odds of making it safely over the Irpin River, a family laden with backpacks and blue and a blue roller suitcase decided to chance it. The Russian mortar hit just as they made it across into Kiev. A cloud of concrete dust lofted into the morning air. When it settled, Ukrainians could be seen running madly from the scene, but not the family. A mother and her two children lay still on the roadway along with a family friend. All four of them died in the photograph Adario took is absolutely devastating with that aforementioned roller suitcase and backpacks, the warm jackets you would imagine a kid wearing this time of year. What struck you about that photograph, David? Well, I mean, it's it, it, we've it sort of goes to what we've talked about before in terms of news coverage of this. Um, it's uh, you know, there's a real power in in the detail, right, in the specificity, and I don't mean to like minimize obviously the loss of life. I think that's certainly the most important thing here. But we've been sitting and watching TV, you know, uh, just sort of borderline indecipherable photos of smoking buildings in the distance and 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 having reports of casualties. I mean, it's not even on like a ticker. It's just sort of like people are offhandedly saying this is the these are the numbers that we're hearing on both sides, you know, combined totals. It's very detached, right? And the and to see a photo like this, along with an article that just sort of relishes, well, relishes is the wrong word, but really is, is along with an article that, that really goes into the granular detail of what happened. Um, 
It's the sort of thing that can have a really big effect. I mean, obviously there's, there's, I don't know what the New York Times, you know, editorial guidelines for publishing this sort of photo are. It does, it does seem, I mean, one presumes that they sort of threw the rules out the window to publish this on the front page and the home page and to make such a big deal of it. Um, and it was the right decision. I think also the style that the piece was written in kind of pushed the boundaries of what a what a traditional, you know, piece of this sort would be in the New York Times or just about anywhere else. And I think that sort of the decision to publish it in the way that it was published was absolutely the right move. And I think it's probably about as effective as anything else they'll do or they've done so far in, in covering this war. It's a very particular horror, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And when you read that story, you understand that these four people were fleeing into Kiev. We've been reading lots of stories and seeing pictures of people fleeing from the city. But these people, their their city was being encroached on by Russian forces. So Kiev was comparatively the safer place to be. Yeah. Even though getting in there involved crossing this bridge. There's also this really interesting evidentiary value to this story and to this photograph. And I'll quote again from the piece, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, has repeatedly denied that his forces are targeting civilians fleeing battle zones, dot, dot, dot. But only a handful of Ukrainian troops were near the bridge when mortar shells began raining down. The soldiers there were not engaged in combat, but in helping refugees carry their children and luggage toward the capital. So the photograph and the accompanying story stand as evidence that the Russians were firing on refugees, on civilians. And we know from the news reports today that Ukrainians and Americans are looking for evidence of war crimes here too. I'll just read you the kicker of this story, David, the last paragraph, Mm -hmm. which is just, again, just sort of had me sort of sitting there this morning uh, in silence for a long time. The group's luggage was scattered about them. A small green pet carrier lay nearby too. A dog could be heard barking. Wow. Dario did an interview with Katie Couric last week. Here is just one bit she said about the importance of having journalists on the ground in Ukraine. At some point, the world leaders have to act. I mean, how long can we sit around? And if you don't have journalists on the ground, if you don't have journalists holding Putin accountable for what he's doing, then it's just going to be Russian-led propaganda. I mean, I think it's very important for people to see the reality. Uh, that's a that's a great sound soundbite. There's a point in the story that you read where they sort of say what Putin has claimed, and then this piece sort of in and of itself stands as evidence to the contrary. Um, I hope that this I hope that that this piece, in so much as it is evidence, can sort of stand in future pieces to let them be or to let them be a little bit more straightforward with it, right? I mean, to sort of there's almost no reason to even re- repeat what Putin is saying when he's not, when he's so plainly not telling the truth. Right. I I think it's probably more helpful to say Putin has lied and said this thing when this is clearly what's going on. Right. Um, and, and maybe that's not included in this piece, like I said, because this piece will be provides kind of cover for that to be said in the future. Um, but uh, it, it, but it is, it's important. It's a very important piece. It's a very important piece. It's a very important photograph. It's a very important, um, it's, it's a, it's a, 
it's a moment that I think that we'll look back on as as a turning point in the way this war was was covered and the way this war was perceived. I think by the general public. Um, yeah, I just I, I I'm I'm I don't know what else there is to even say about it. Let's jump further into the idea of perceiving the war, the way the war is perceived, because we know the Ukrainians who are outmanned and outgunned by the Russian army have tried to use social media and web video to further thwart the Russian advance, or at least slow it down. On Thursday, David, something fairly remarkable happened, which is that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had a press conference. Now, this is somebody whose capital is under siege, who is is himself a target of Russian forces. This was the New York Times account. Inside the building, security officials escorted journalists by flashlight through darkened corridors filled with soldiers. Sandbags have been stacked along the windowsills. At doorways, firing positions were in place to shoot from inside Mr. Zelensky's office compound onto the street outside. Mr. Zelensky thanked the reporters for turning up. So here is the most ceremonial thing a world leader can do. Have a press conference. But that's part of the power here, right? You, you, the Russians want to say that the Ukrainian government is faltering or is gone. I'm going to do this ceremonial thing, this ritualistic thing to prove that we are still here. Well, and it stands in such stark contrast to what's going on um, in Russia, uh, where you have, you know, last week Putin was photographed in a meeting with his military advisors where he was, you know, 50 feet down the table for many of them, which is just so bizarre. And then somehow even more bizarre, he gave, he answered media, obviously state media questions while in the midst of some sort of luncheon with flight attendants uh, at the end of last week, which is just like the most, I mean, again, not to make light of it, but if somebody was like scripting, scripting a movie about, you know, uh, a leader's descent into madness, it would probably look something like this. It's, it's Zelensky's, I mean, it's just such an impressive, impressive performance by him to take it in a real, like, sort of media reductive sense. But he's just been such a powerful figure through all this. And you're right; you do the bare minimum, and that's a really incredible thing to do in his position. You know, to 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 stand tall and say this government continues. You know, I mean, that's it's it's um, it, it's, sometimes the optics are are the most important thing. Well, and the symbolism is so interesting with those two, for those two leaders, right? Because on the one hand, with Putin, he's saying, "No, that this is not a war. This is not an invasion." We've heard that, right? This is what he mm-hmm. calls a quote-unquote special operation. So I need to be seen treating it like it's a mere special operation, where Zelensky wants to be seen showing that this is a war, but that I am still here, right? Yeah. That I am still that I am still the effective government. So that that's a really interesting contrast uh, between the two of them. Too. There's also been a lot made of Zelensky's videos that he's been making and the statements he's been giving to the press. The U.S. offered him uh, offered to help him get to safety last week, and he said, "quote I need ammunition, not a ride." Quote that was so amazing. By the way, I looked it up three or four times to make sure it was real. Uh, at that press conference I mentioned. He said, I simply do not have the right to be afraid. He's made several videos where he is being seen during the invasion outside at night 
mm-hmm. in front of identifiable landmarks. Robin Javon of the Washington Post says that because it displays the power of vulnerability, the persuasiveness of simplicity, and the public's collective need to believe that modest men can rise to meet any moment. Yeah. Right. She even talks about the things he's wearing, right? T-shirts, you know, not not a suit, right, with a pocket square, but a t-shirt. Small things like this that this former actor is using to communicate with both the Ukrainian public and with the world. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it, to talk about it in sort of, like I said, reductive sort of, you know, media-centric terms does diminish it. But, you know, there's the old saying that, that you know, the plural of anecdote is not data or whatever. And, and I think that that you could you could say that in the conversation about the photo we had at the top of the show or these these moments that you know these these Zelensky appearances but the symbolism really does matter at a time like this because it is educational it helps people to understand right it helps people to draw to 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 see uh to see to understand what's happening on a sort of granular level even if it's an incomplete view this sort of thing helps that that's that's why symbolism is important because all of our views are going to be incomplete right to see something like that that sort of speaks to a bigger idea is what helps us understand from this sort of you know this sort of distance our listener lindsey thornton also sent us this washington post story by drew harwell really interesting story harwell writes on telegram twitter and youtube ukraine's ministry of internal affairs since sunday has posted a constant stream of extremely graphic images showcasing the horrors of war and inviting Russians to examine them to determine whether the images feature a missing loved one. In many of the images, soldiers' corpses can be seen burned, ripped apart, mangled in wreckage, or abandoned in snow. In some, their faces are featured in bloody close-ups, frozen in pain. In others, prisoners are interrogated by captors about the invasion as they shake with emotion. Some of the men sent crumpled, hands-bound, eyes blindfolded with tape. And as Harwell points out, the audience there is Russians. Russians who we've seen protesting, right? We've heard have been arrested for protesting in the streets in Russia, saying, here's what's really happening. Here is the carnage of war. Here is what your leader has led you into. And trying to sort of do that through the media too. David Vladimir Putin has countered, in a way, with his own law. NPR notes that Putin signed a law making the airing of what the government calls false information about the armed forces illegal. Journalists could be jailed for up to 15 years. Russian officials assert it's false to call their military operations in Ukraine a war or invasion. And this isn't just Putin trying to crack down on his own press, which has been going on for years and years. CNN, ABC, CBS, and the BBC temporarily stopped broadcasting from Russia, lest their own reporters be thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. Standing up there, doing your stand-up, and saying, this is a war, this is an invasion, and then, oh, sorry, that's against the law now. Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's not much to say about it, except that, you know, there comes a point where... Putin's unwilling or unable to even hide what's going on anymore. You know, he might still be clinging on to the military operation language, but that just sort of seems like a formality to give. You know, in so many ways, international diplomacy is just sort of lip service, right? And so you you can actually get away if you're, you know, in his position, you can get away with a lot more just by calling a thing a thing that it's not. But in every other way, this is pretty straightforward. It's a really good column uh, by Lorraine Ali in the LA Times. 
which a couple of people also sent us. The title was in Ukraine reporting Western press reveals grim bias toward quote people like us. Oh yeah. I want you to listen to one example from Lorena Lee's column. Listen to this quote from correspondent Charlie Diagata of CBS News. Now with the Russians marching in, it's changed uh, the calculus entirely. Uh, Tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. So it's partly human nature, but they are not in denial. You can hear him in the middle of that. Just being like, oh, whoops, I I said something that was incredibly offensive. I have to choose my words carefully after not choosing his words carefully at all. And in fact, saying the offensive thing. People were pointing this out. The fact that, you know, this was preemptively. I mean, before before the invasion even began, I saw people on Twitter saying this is going to get more attention than anything we've ever done in the Middle East because the victims are white. You know, I mean, the people people were saying we're predicting this and it's come true. And even though that was predicted, predicted, it has not stopped some of the commentariat from saying those things pretty straightforwardly, right? From saying from from delineating Ukrainians uh, as opposed to, to to people in other countries that we've had military involvement in. It's been pretty disturbing and disgusting at times. Now, the fact that we're having this conversation, I mean, I, I would like to think it means it's a valid conversation to be having, but it's a difficult one to have, you know, because it does it, it it's um it, it because it's because it's a difficult subject, because it's like it it to to watch to, to try to interrogate our own biases while we're, you know, trying to to cover something this significant. It's it's difficult to reconcile those two things maybe at the same time, but it's important that we do. Absolutely. And as Ali writes, a number of correspondents, consciously or not, frame suffering and displacement as acceptable for Arabs, Afghans, and others over there, but not here, in Europe, where the people, quote, have blue eyes and blonde hair, end quote, and mm-hmm. where they, quote, look like us, end quote. And yes, she writes, those are actual quotations from news clips. Highly recommend that column, which is yeah. I mean, and, and again, some. I mean, it's so difficult uh, because I'm sure some of those quotes were used with people trying to make this point really inarticulately or whatever. I mean, but it's it's just it's it's really telling, right? There's a lot of people who would who would wince or protest the use of the term like savage to describe someone in a foreign country, right? But then you actually like, but functionally you just, you, you describe them that way by putting them in a separate category, right? By, by delineating between two cultures based on whatever ephemeral notion of them that you have is just as bad. And I think that it's important that we all sort of take a look at how these things are discussed. A couple more notes, David, uh, before we leave this subject, you mentioned Putin's gigantic table. Now, we're not doing the only in journalism words bit anymore. But if we were, I would bring up this tweet from ABC News. Russian President Vladimir Putin huddled with officials, huddled being the key only in journalism word there, to discuss the economic turmoil amid his invasion of Ukraine. And he is sitting 
what looks like a football field's length apart from his advisors. So you are huddling in the headline sense of the word, but you are not actually huddling because you're nowhere near your advisors. David, from uh, one of your particular focuses here, the Wall Street Journal reports that World Wrestling Entertainment is ending its partnership with Russian broadcaster Match and shutting down the WWE network in the country. I noticed that from the list of sanctions and economic reactions. I mean, yeah, I mean, wrestling fans uh, can see how sort of silly that is. I mean, just as sort of insufficient that is. But I guess, you know, everybody sort of has to go through with this at this point in time. I mean, and, and listen, it's important, you know, if companies like WWE don't do it, then maybe a bigger, more significant company would be tempted not to as well. So, you know, I'm not sure that, that, you know, preventing Russians from watching WrestleMania two is really going to do much good. But, you know, like I said, sometimes symbolism matters. Then David, we had a TV debate go to a very strange place. The host was talking about Ukraine, was interviewing two people, which is always tricky. And the host was really getting on one of the guests, Daniel McAdams, the director of the Ron Paul Institute. Mr. McAdams, don't go there. Mr. McAdams, don't lecture us. Meanwhile, the second guest was sitting there in the TV screen with a kind of confused look on his face. Listen to what happens when that second guest finally managed to get a word in. And if he feels so strongly, he should go and fight alongside Ukrainians who are being Killed. I have not, dear host, I have not said a word yet. I don't know why you're yelling at me. No, I'm not yelling at you. I'm talking about Mr. McAdams. I'm talking about I Mr. McAdams. Mr. McAdams. I am Mr. McAdams. Oh, I am Mr. McAdams and I haven't said a word. So stop yelling at me. Okay, sorry. I got that confused. I got it's that Ukrainian confused. Ukrainian guy who's going nuts, okay? I, not me. Yes, I got that. I got that. That's more than hello. Probably a bad sign when you have to say dear host. <laughs> In the, the first time the I saw this, I myself was slightly confused at the beginning because the way that the, the the identifying like chirons are set up, they're above the they're above their heads instead of what you would assume to be below. So I, I'm guessing I know how he made the mistake, but you know, probably switched, would help. I guess. Right? No, it was just I think that Mr. McAdams was like in the middle between two the two talking heads, and the other guys was up on the top where you could barely see it. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was um, yeah. I guess there's room for levity even in times like this, right? The crazy thing was that how the, the the host, the the guy who was yelling, I don't even know what his name was, but the but the the the, the fellow who would would just seem to be like monologuing. I mean, just screaming, just yelling his point of view without any break. But he was basically muted the entire time, and the host was just lecturing him, yeah. giving his own monologue, which just seemed he seemed to sort of enjoy it. I mean, I don't know if that if, you know, but it's but it, the whole the whole performance was just pretty incredible. And the degree to which Mr. McAdams, Mr. McAdams was just apoplectic by the time his microphone got turned on was just amazing. I hope Mr. McAdams has a big you know career in U.S. media after this. David, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod. Well, they are always, always gratefully received. David, this week's winner comes to us from listener Ben. We've been talking about the tension between Russia and the rest of the world. The head of Russian foreign intelligence, Sergei Narishkin, described that tension by using a familiar buzzword. 
Narishkin said, this is about an attempt to ruin our government to cancel it. Russia is being canceled in this formulation. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, great. Now Russia's going to join Substack. <laughs> Thanks again to Ben. If you can't wait to subscribe to Russia's newsletter, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. By the way, somebody sent me this this week, too. There was a shot of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was appearing on MSNBC as a guest, and the Chiron said, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Substack columnist. <laughs> I saw that. Oh, that's so great. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Speaking of which, David, in the notebook dump, let us get a media segment out of Winning Time. New show that debuted last night on HBO. The show is about the birth of the Showtime LA Lakers of the 1980s, and it promises to show the birth of one of the greatest rivalries of our time, the one between Adam McKay and his former creative partner, Will Ferrell. Now, just kidding. But, but, that rivalry, which came out in a November Vanity Fair profile, has weirdly blotted out a lot of the pre-release publicity for the show, weirdly added to it, if my listening of several sports radio segments that have mentioned the McKay-Farrell riff is right. What do you think? Well, I mean, if it was a deliberate move to sort of get early attention for the show, it certainly worked. I mean, I'm not sure how much it really helps the show. I just want to say, I'm not saying it's deliberate, but has just weirdly become this sort of part of the interest in the show. Oh yeah, no, I'm not saying I don't I'm not I'm not sure that it was deliberate either. Well, okay. It did seem like I don't know if it was a deliberate move to publicize the show, but it did sort of feel like it was a deliberate move by Adam McKay to like apologize to his old partner in public starting it was starting in November, like maybe that was the only way he he could he could get him to pick up the phone or whatever. But um, regardless, it is interesting how it subsumed the show and it's not particularly, I mean, you, you, you know, make the rivalry parallel and okay, but it's not particularly like relevant to the show. Right. I mean, Adam McKay has a lot of, a lot of his sort of creative ticks are present in the show, but 
sir, you know, I think that the vast majority of people are going to turn it on and be interested in, you know, the Lakers and less so the creative <laughs> process, right? So uh, it's it's um, you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting point of focus for sports radio, and yet, <laughs> um, you know, Will Ferrell, who is who is just sort of the absent. You know the, the 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 missing big name in all of this pre 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 airing put you know publicity push. Will Ferrell's probably about the, has about the highest approval rating on you know American sports radio as any of anybody in the world. So <laughs> I can understand why people would be would be you know drawn to discuss uh, his off screen relationship with his old production partner. Yeah, it's right in the sports radio Venn diagram because Step Brothers and Anchorman. Yeah. And everything Will Ferrell does, everything Adam McKay and Will Ferrell did together is right like in the sports radio, just cultural touchstone category. Mm-hmm. So the reason this rift happened and the reason it is at all relevant to this show is that the main character in the first episode and presumably in most of the series is going to be Jerry Buff, Buss, former Lakers owner. Okay. Mm-hmm. Will Ferrell wanted to play Jerry Buss. And Adam McKay, this is according to Joe Hagan's Vanity Fair profile, says this. The truth is, the way the show was always going to be done, it's hyper-realistic. And Farrell just doesn't look like Jerry Buss, and he's not that vibe of a Jerry Buss. And there were some people involved who were like, we love Farrell, he's a genius, but we can't see him doing it. It was a bit of a hard discussion. In the end, he, this McKay, cast John C. Riley in the role anyway without telling Farrell first. <laughs> Farrell was infuriated. I should have called him and I didn't, says McKay. And Riley did, of course, because he's because Riley, he's a stand up guy. So. So, I mean, listen, that's I take all that at face value. I think it sort of. Says just enough, you know, and and, and it, do, it doesn't seem to be too biased one way or the other. I, I uh, It is interesting, though, because I mean, what I mean, Will Farrell's Jerry Buss would have basically just been Ron Burgundy, right? And and I think to a lot of people, if you're not doing a strict, serious, you know, straight-faced biopic, maybe that would have been enough. But it is, you know, I, it, it feels like they probably made the right call on this one. There is something really weird that happens when we take people who are recent people in the news or in the culture and we try to make a television show about them. Mm-hmm. People who we have a really defined sense in our minds of what they look like. Mm-hmm. I don't have a great sense of Dr. Jerry Buss, despite seeing him on the sidelines of a thousand NBA games in my youth. Mm-hmm. But I do know what Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar look like. Yep. And Jerry West, who's also a big character in episode one. Mm-hmm. And it is very funny to watch, this was the same way with that. Remember the OJ Simpson movie a couple years ago? Oh, yeah. It's very weird to watch a movie. And I think it takes like 28 minutes. That's my very, very um, serious calculation there. Before you just start giving yourself over and stop thinking that person doesn't look exactly like the person they're playing. Yeah. Or have the same kind of just way they walk, way they talk and all that kind of stuff. And it, it took, I swear, it took me like halfway through the first episode. And then I kind of start going, okay, okay, I, I can roll with this. I can I can sort of believe that that person is Magic Johnson. 
Sure. Yeah, I mean, it. it's... We see it's not just that, you know, I mean, we see there's a, a a million movies that you could find on, you know, various streaming services right now about uh, people playing the Tiger King characters or, you know, various startup founders or whatever else. But um, there is something very particular about about how our famous athletes are portrayed, right? Because mm-hmm. they're so iconic, but they're also for basketball players. We do know them and we do see them in a lot of different ways and and at a lot of different points of their life and their careers um so it's not just a one note you know it's it's not just a saturday night live caricature or something right you have like everybody has a different subconscious idea of what makes magic johnson magic johnson and it's a it's an incredibly difficult part to cast as they've written about in some of the pre-press stuff too that was overshadowed by Adam McKay and Will Ferrell's falling out. By the way, I just want to say, as we, if you hear a sports radio, if you if you hear a sports radio segment about this, listen closely and see if they don't give a little bit, a little bit more slack to Adam McKay and Will Ferrell, or a little bit more, a little bit more, uh, you know, just give them a little bit more, put a little more insight into into digesting that falling out than they do, you know, a professional athlete who has a falling out with his team. Or uh, wants to leave his team. I, I think, I think Adam McKay and Will Ferrell are treated with a little bit more humanity. That's very funny, and and a lot less side taking, perhaps, than uh, in the other uh, Fallout. Mm-hmm. It's also it's also funny to me how much now you know I've talked about this before. Sports radio has become a ringer podcast, <laughs> or vice versa. I'm not quite sure which way it went, but there is so much like let us talk about a television, a serialized television show, one that's happening right now or one that happened 20 years ago and go episode by episode and do a segment every day about it. Whatever distinction there was between those two audio forms has completely collapsed as far as I can tell. Oh yeah. Everybody knows I listen to Philly sports radio here now that I live in, in, God God bless you, you, David. (laughs) Philadelphia adjacent part of New Jersey, but, but, it's it's always amazing when I like turn on Angelo Cataldi in the morning and just like accidentally find them talking about power of the dog or just some like Oscar. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of there's a lot. It's not like a, as far as I can tell, not a deliberate segment, but they'll just go into talking about whatever TV show or movie it is that, that they decided to watch. And it's 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 always entertaining. So this series, Winning Time. Shows a lot of the great things, the flattering things about the Showtime Lakers, and also a lot of the unflattering things Mm -hmm. or slightly embarrassing things that happened during that period. I think I have cracked the PR code Uh for the makers of Winning Time. I want to give you a few quotes and tell me if you notice a theme emerging here. John C. Riley, who we noted plays Jerry Buss, said this, I hope everyone who knew these people in real life and loved them will feel that this is a love letter. A love letter. This is from Jeff Perlman, the sports writer who wrote the book Winning Time is based on. It's a love letter to the Lakers. Lovely. Max Bornstein, one of the co-creators of the series, says, it's my love letter to that era. It's my love letter to basketball. And it's my love letter to L.A. <laughs> I could keep going here, David. Executive producer Rodney Barnes. This is done out of love and appreciation for the Lakers and the game itself. Quincy Isaiah, the actor who plays Magic Johnson, uh, very well, I might add. You don't do a show like this without a deep admiration and love for what they did and who they are. 
<laughs> Please turn to page 54 in your... Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And it strikes me as that's exactly the way to play this. Both with the series and then a book like this. Because, by the way, nothing wrong with doing a series that is real and has some stuff that the participants, the people who were there would not have their first choice to have been in the series, right? They would have like, they would have not have, they would not have put those things in the show, but you don't come out and say, this is how it really is. This mm-hmm. is a rough, this is a treatment that everybody's going to win set. You come out and say, you tack the other way. This is a love letter. Yeah. So the people who want that will tune in and people who want the other thing will also tune in. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it does, it is important to frame it, right? Because the show, even if you're, even if you're apathetic to, Magic Johnson and, and you know, Pat Riley and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's complaints about the series, even if you're like, whatever, I want, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't care what they thought either way. Watching a show that's just like a takedown is much less fun than watching a show that at a bare minimum sort of revels in the madness, right? Or And, mm-hmm. and certainly like you want a show that's, that's celebratory, even if mid-celebration you're seeing a lot of, you know, sketchy things going on in the background that's part of the joy i guess just in some of this but but it it does it it to frame the show as a not just a positive thing but this is like like the show itself is all of us having a good time you know i mean i think that makes that that does affect the way that you view it uh probably related genie bus and magic johnson who i believe did not comment about the series are doing their own documentary project right of course for Apple and Hulu. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar tells the New York Times to a spokesman that the series is, quote, based on a fictional account taken from a book, end quote, that it was written by an outsider, that is the book, and the story is best told by those who lived it. You would think that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would not be on the side of, you know, if you haven't taken a hit going over the middle, you don't deserve to be deserve to be coaching football. You know, that's, ba- that's basically the point of view here, right? <laughs> that like, if you weren't there, this is a guy who's written a number of books. If you weren't there to see it, then you have no business writing about it. I mean, that come on. Just because I guess you can make the case that if there's if the if the if the participants are alive, then they can, you know, then there's there's better firsthand evidence. But that's the point of writing a book because you kind of accumulate all that and and tell the story such as you perceive it to be true. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. Obviously they're just trying to, they're just trying to denigrate Jeff Perlman's account, which, you know, maybe that would have been more the thing to do after when the book came out and not just now that it's being made into a TV show that people, <laughs> that everybody's going to see. Right. Well, you're but, damned if you're damned if you do it, damned if you don't. Right. Cause you're like, this is full of lies. This is a dangerous thing that all people are going to do is watch the series. Mm hmm. You do an anti-advertisement that is just effectively an, a- an advertisement for the series. It's true. The more people, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who says, let the journalists roam, let the filmmakers do their thing. But if you're, if you're the principal in this, really, you're in kind of a tough one, right? Because mm-hmm. if you endorse it, you're endorsing a whole bunch of stuff. And this is, as the filmmakers admitted, this is drawn from the book. You're right, and no but comment. But not every moment in here really happened like this exactly, right? There's a lot of creative sure. license, which is fine. But if you also say, don't watch this series, well, everybody's going to watch it. Sure. I mean, no comment would probably be more effective. It's always probably more effective in situations like this, especially when like, you know, some of these HBO shows are just 
just take over all of our conversation, but the bar is like relatively low in terms of what sort of viewership it would take to make this a a success, especially compared to what would have been a success five, 10 years ago or something. I don't know. I just see, yeah, you're absolutely right that, that Magic and Kareem and all those people saying this is full of lies will probably just make the show. I mean, that's, that could be the direct cause of the show being just a wild success. Yeah, what do you think they're going to use that on the poster? The the show Kareem Abdul Jabbar doesn't want you to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the show Kareem exactly. Abdul Jabbar would prefer be made by people who were there. They should just go overboard with that. Just make every episode, like have every episode, just have one outlandish caricature. You know, have like Larry Bird walk in and like <laughs> like a cowboy hat and a jock strap, and just sorry, just be like be a total like just cartoon character, just so Larry Bird will be forced to come out and be like, yeah. "This show is full of lies." You know, <laughs> I, I, that that would be a great great PR decision. My favorite moment from the first episode was they had they recreated Kareem Abdul Jabbar's one of his scenes in the movie Airplane. Right, you know he's the pilot and then the camera goes from that to the director's chairs and they actually had zucker abrams and zucker the directors of airplane and the naked gun and a hundred other funny Mm -hmm. things sitting there directing the movie (laughs) the real guys wow we didn't have to go over that you know strange thing where you look see somebody playing the zazz boys it was the real guys right there it's the kind of attention to detail i appreciate it's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Oof. Okay, let's do it. Thursday's headline about a typewriter collector's abiding passion was Quirty Deeds. <laughs> Quirty Deeds. I love that one. Today's headline comes from Larry Gast, David. It's from The Economist. Actually, The Economist Podcast Network. Man. They did an episode on what China's aims are. Read The Invasion of Ukraine. China has been an ally of Russia, but not totally an ally when it comes to Ukraine. You should remember, David, when guessing this, that China's president is Xi Jinping. Oh, my God. Xi Jinping. This is terrible. What was the economist's strain pun headline? I feel like I'm just going to get in trouble for trying to answer this. Uh, is what China's aims are. Yes. Um sort of a halfway friend she is it what a if ping? I, what if, what is if it a I, ping pun it's it's she oh it's she okay what if, what if i what if i direct you to a 1992 song nothing but a she thing <laughs> i have no idea what song you're singing all right we're just gonna give it up right here so i will stop singing all that she wants. Oh, all right. All that she wants. Congratulations, economist. He is David I, I still, I still think nothing but a she thing would have been a better headline. <laughs> I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. I'm back later in the week and then Shoemaker and I'm back Monday. More lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>